Hi, and welcome to the Beyond the Scale podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, and this podcast, presented by Sequence, will discuss a wide range of topics related to obesity, nutrition, and fitness. With the help of special guests, my goal is to shed light on the new weight science. Welcome back to the Beyond the Scale podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, and we have today with us a special guest, Dr. Michelle Cardell, who is an RD-PhD nutrition scientist. And she's the head of clinical research and nutrition at Weight Watchers. I wanted to bring her on because we talk about medicines and even surgery and, and diet with those things and exercise with those things. But I wanted to talk about basically the efficacy of diet by itself. And we're going to kind of get into you know why people may need medicines on top of the uh, diet. So welcome, Dr. Michelle. Thank you, Dr. Spencer. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming on. So you're a, a nutrition scientist, RD, PhD. You've, you've done clinical trials when it comes to just behavioral therapy in general, which means non-pharmacological or non-surgical. So you're kind of an expert in this world. And, and I kind of want to see, talk about how much weight loss we can get with just purely diet. And there's been a bunch of trials out there. And I will mention that the way we look at these trials, when it, whether it's a diet or medicine or surgery, we should be looking at percentage of body weight as opposed to just, you can lose 20 pounds with this diet because it depends on how much weight you have and how much weight you have to lose and your body composition and some of these other things. So for example, whether you're 150 pounds, 200 pounds, 250 pounds, 300 pounds, 400 pounds, et cetera, the percent total body weight loss is more relevant than just a total amount of weight loss, if that makes sense. So yeah, let's talk about it. What, In general, what, how much weight can you lose on average? We'll say on average because there are certain responders, but on average, can you expect from just like a diet-only type of weight loss? Yeah, so behavioral weight management interventions typically incorporate changes in diet, physical activity, and then behavior change strategies. And on average, we're pretty happy if we see about 5 to 8% body weight loss over a one-year period. There's certain studies using things like acceptance-based therapy that you can see up to 13% body weight loss, but they tend to be the exception, not the rule. So that 5 to 8% body weight loss is, is generally what we see. So that's at one year. And as the years go on, do they keep that weight off or does it start to go down? Yeah. So like anything, the medications only work if you continue it. The behavioral weight management programs only work if you continue it. So when people stop their program, you do tend to see weight regain. And generally, we see the majority of that weight is regained within a five-year period. You're still decreased from baseline on average, and you're certainly decreased relative to the trajectory we would expect at a five-year mark if you continued at that weight gain of about average two pounds per year that we generally see in the population. But when we look at absolute numbers, most of that weight tends to be regained over a five-year period with behavioral weight management alone if you stop the program. Does the diet matter? Like, could it be like a plant-based diet versus a keto diet versus something in between or whatever? Yeah, it's a great question. People tend to think, oh, if I do low-carb or low-fat or, you know, keto, like, that's going to be the the secret sauce or the ticket to my weight loss. And it could be, but the data consistently shows that it's less important what the macronutrient composition is of the diet. And it's more important what you can stick to over the long term. So in behavioral weight management, we talk about compliance is king and 
the best diet to follow is the one that you can stick with over the long term. If you're somebody who's predisposed to not loving meat, for example, then going on like a keto-like diet probably isn't going to be easy or successful for you over the long term. Yeah. What's your favorite diet? What do you... I like shawarma. I like a shawarma diet. That's my favorite. <laughs> Dr. Spencer shared his shawarma with me when we were in New York last week, and it was delicious. So, yes, I vote for any diet that incorporates shawarma. Yeah. They, they Uber eats it to me. With an, on a guy on a bicycle dropped it off to me. It was pretty cool. Um, okay. I, no, I see you posting your, your pictures. You have uh, Where are you from? I live in Gainesville, Florida, but my family's from Puerto Rico. Yeah, and you had some yummy-looking Puerto Rican food, I saw. So very good. So you can stick, sounds like you could stick to that. So macronutrients don't matter, but it matters how well you stick to it. What are some things that like help people stick to a diet then? Like if that's the issue, I mean, obviously this is a, this is a sequence kind of podcast and we use medicines and what, whatnot, but like medicines help people stick to the plan. But what, what are some like behavioral things that have been shown to help? Anything in particular? Yeah, so self-monitoring strategies are definitely beneficial. So, for example, doing kind of regular self-weighing, not that the scale or the number on the scale is the most important thing. I mean, this podcast is called Beyond the Scale. Beyond the Scale. Beyond the Scale. But... It's data. It's information. And of course, as a scientist, I love data. So it's not that the number on the scale is the be-all, end-all, but it's a piece of data that can inform where you are in your journey, you know, and it can help you look at overall patterns and trajectories over the long term. So generally, we recommend weighing somewhere between daily to at least once a week. Some folks weighing daily can kind of like mess with them. So if you find that it, it can make you getting a little bit too obsessive, then we definitely don't recommend that. But as long as you can stay, you know, feeling good about things up to like once a week can be a great time to weigh in. And then other self-monitoring strategies like food tracking. Food tracking is consistently one of the strongest predictors of weight loss in a behavioral weight management intervention. And it doesn't mean you have to meticulously count the calories or anything. It it means you're just literally journaling and, and putting, you're, you're just monitoring it somehow, right? Is that? Correct. Consistency beats perfection every time. So it's why we think food tracking can be so beneficial is the accountability that it brings. And so, you know, it's not about tracking every single lick, bite, and taste. In fact, in the Weight Watchers program, we have over 200 foods that you don't have to track because they form the foundation of an overall healthy dietary pattern. But generally, using the tracking can help you stay accountable and is associated with greater weight loss over the long term. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a specific calorie tracker. It could even be a notebook that you write down mm-hmm. what you ate. Exactly. I don't know if there are any trials that have actually done just that versus an, an app, but I have a feeling they'd be pretty similar if I had to guess. What about the scale thing? So there are a lot of people that get really anxious about the scale. And in, in fact, with our program, there's some people like, I really don't want to like we have to see the data to make sure they're not losing too much weight or if they're not losing weight at all, we need to intervene in some way. So we really ask people like, Hey, if it, if it comes down to it, have like your partner cover up the number mm-hmm. and then email us the number, things like that. Is there, exactly. are there any data like showing that 
making people weigh will increase the anxiety around scales? Or is it like more so it's just people get anxious because of it? The data actually shows that there's no increases at a population level Mm -hmm. with self-weighing in terms of adverse outcomes like anxiety or depression or things like that. But again, there's always going to be variability. And if folks know that about themselves and they know that it causes them a lot of anxiety, then the scale doesn't have to be the measure that they're looking at. It can be, how are they feeling? How are they sleeping at night? How are their blood lipids changing? I agree that in the case of of being on meds, it's important to to monitor from a medical perspective, like you said, to make sure folks aren't losing too much too fast. But generally, if that's something that getting on the scale causes you a great deal of anxiety, it absolutely does not have to be part of your health and wellness journey. Cool. What about like the quality of, of the diet? And when I say quality, I'm talking about food composition. You know, I'm not talking about like canned versus frozen versus fresh. I'm talking about the actual food composition. What effect does that have? Yeah. So at the end of the day, you can lose weight in a calorie deficit regardless of the quality of the diet. But again, it's not just about the number on the scale. The goal of weight loss for folks who medically need it or want it, it's to optimize health and wellness and well-being. And that's where the importance of diet quality comes in. You know, I, I just did, I just saw this guy on TikTok who's doing McDonald's for a hundred days as a way to lose weight. And he was like, yeah, it's, it doesn't really matter what you eat. It's the quantity of what you eat. And as a dietitian, I would say the data is pretty clear that can you lose weight eating nothing but McDonald's for a hundred days? Yes, you can. Should you? Absolutely not. <laughs> One time I made a, an Instagram, this is back when I, I first started Instagram and it, this thing went viral, but it was, I compared regular peanut butter cups to like organic peanut butter cups. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's funny cause I was like, they're, they're both like dessert foods, you know, whether you call them junk foods or not, some people don't like that term cause we don't want to give bad labels to certain foods that can cause some distress in some people. But anyway. And it's like, these are both like dessert foods. They have the same amount of calories. It doesn't matter. What's funny is that some people are like, yeah, but the organic has such a better quality. I'm like, I don't think, I don't think there's enough of a quality difference in these peanut butter cups to make much of a health difference. We should probably focus on what, what are some dietary quality things that are, that are beneficial? Like, what would you steer people towards? Yeah, so there have been research studies looking at if organic is nutritionally superior to conventional made foods and even in fruits and vegetables. And the data was very clear that nutritionally, there's no difference between organic versus conventional foods. In terms of what I do recommend prioritizing, it's going to be increased protein, like lean sources of protein, trying to increase your fiber from fruits and veggies and whole grains, and making sure that the food that you're eating is going to be sustainable for you over the long term. So like, what would be a good meal? I want to hear a Puerto Rican meal. That's what I want. Okay. I'll tell you about some of the great meals I ate in Puerto Rico. So of course we have Puerto Rico as an island. So we have amazing seafood. So I very much prioritized lean sources of protein while I was in Puerto Rico. Conch salad is one of my favorite things ever. I know it's kind of like fringy, but I love it. That is good. You know, eating grilled fish, 
pairing that with, you know, a salad. And then because it's Puerto Rico, of course, having some some beans and rice, which the combo mm. of the two makes for a complete protein, making sure I'm getting in that fiber. And then because we have like the best fruit ever, like I love the mango in Puerto Rico, you know, having some fruit for dessert for, you know, that fiber intake, for example. Now, that sounds excellent. Yeah, people talk about like the Mediterranean diet style, but like maybe you can explain this pretty well, but there's so many different variations. What does that Mediterranean diet even mean? In the United States, people are like olive oil and nuts, and but like other people from the Mediterranean area are always laugh. They always message me like, oh, Dr. Spencer, there's so many different ways you can eat in the Mediterranean area. Do you know much about that? Or Yeah, you are spot on and the feedback you're getting from folks is definitely spot on. Yeah, I think as Americans, we tend to generalize it like, oh, I love the Mediterranean style diet because I can have wine and olive oil and, you know, dark chocolate. And yes, that can be part of a Mediterranean style diet. But yes, there's many different varieties in general when studies have been done using a Mediterranean style diet. There does seem to be pretty significant benefits in terms of cardiometabolic health outcomes, but there also seems to be some benefits in terms of mental health. So the Mediterranean-style diet, I think, is an area that's ripe for further exploration. But yeah, kind of quantifying in a more standardized way of what does that actually mean is going to be essential for talking with, with patients about, okay, what does this mean for you and how do you actually implement this? Cool. Now you were at, didn't you go to that conference over in England looking uh, at the, the Royal Society of the London Royal ones, meeting, yes. you know, and so you've, and Kevin Hall's a really good friend of mine. And what about like ultra processed foods versus more like whole foods? I mean, sure. You could go to McDonald's. Sure. You could eat. I mean, there's the guy that the professor that did the Twinkie thing for however long and showed he had improvements in his blood markers and lost weight. But like Overall, like when we're talking about sustainability, so we're also talking about satiety, which is what the medicines work on, but like from a dietary composition standpoint, you know, you talked about lean proteins. Is that what you would recommend for satiety purposes? Yeah. So your first question was around ultra processed foods versus kind of whole foods. And I think Kevin Hall's data is pretty clear that ultra processed foods can lead to increased calorie intake. In his study, he did a really cool study in basically like a hospital-based setting where he gave folks unlimited access to whole foods versus ultra-processed foods. And when they were exposed to the ultra-processed foods, they ate on average about 500 more calories per day. They gained more weight, they gained more fat, whereas on the whole food diet, you know, they tended to lose more weight and ate about 500 calories less per day. So all of that suggests that minimizing our ultra-processed food intake could be beneficial for weight loss and likely for our cardiometabolic health parameters. But I think it's also important to recognize that There's a lot of factors at play in why people eat what they eat, and the decisions that people make are based on the choices that they have. And I think it's really important to recognize that not everybody has access or can afford a whole food diet all of the time. Not everybody has a conch salad in their backyard. (laughs) Exactly. Not everybody can eat conch salad or have access to fresh fruits and vegetables like mango. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. Yeah, I recognize 
guys. I'm incredibly privileged. What about plantains? You guys have plantains? Yeah, we eat a lot of plantains in Puerto Rico. Unfortunately, the only way that I really enjoy plantains is when they're fried. Uh, I love plantain chips. I love tostones. I love Uh, mofongo. Oh, man. So I I can't eat them boiled, unfortunately. I just can't stomach it. Mm. I'm a bad Puerto Rican. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds good to me. Um, okay, what about like what about physical activity? We've talked about diet and stuff. Mm-hmm. Does physical activity augment the dietary efforts? Like, can you get like whatever five, six percent with diet only, and then you add on the physical activity? And how much does that add on to the total body weight loss in general? Yeah. So studies show that you can augment weight loss by about. So say you were going to lose five kilos, maybe you could lose up to six if you Mm -hmm. incorporated, you know, physical activity. But I, the saying of like, you can't outrun a bad diet very much applies in this case. Like the dietary changes have to be part of it for the weight loss piece. Now, studies do show that physical activity is incredibly important for the weight loss maintenance, so that maintenance of the weight loss over the long term. Have you ever tried to outrun your fork? Have you ever done? <laughs> I've, I've um, tried. I, I win every time. I have to tell yeah. you quite fast. <laughs> I've tried to do that. I did a triathlon training. I can't believe it's been like eight years ago, but I had, in order to keep my weight on, I had to eat a lot. I mean, I was eating cupcakes at night and things. People are listening to this going, oh, good job, Dr. Spencer. Like, that's what we (laughs) want to hear. But like, I, it was, the amount of training was a a lot. But you, despite, I actually gained weight, but most, it seemed like mostly muscle. But like my blood markers, there was a major shift in lipids, specifically my apolipoprotein B, which is one of these, um, it's the protein that carries the the cholesterol and it gets into your arteries, basically. So if I would have had a higher quality diet, but I wouldn't have been able to get as many calories needed to sustain my weight, I don't think it's possible to outrun outrun your diet unless you're like, I don't know, you'd have to somehow force feed yourself and good stuff and that would be really hard to do. So if yeah. quality of the diet matters. Absolutely. All right. So you talked about before how it's hard for people to stick to the diet. You talked about, you know, some things are out of control, like your environment, like where you live. You're joking about not everybody's in Puerto Rico and can get conch salad and things like that. But like, what other factors that have a a large impact on whether you can stick to a diet or not? Yeah. So I think the socioeconomic status components as it can be a very real barrier. One of the things that I've done in my career as a registered dietitian was I used to teach um, nutrition and cooking classes. It was called Cooking Matters to folks who had lower incomes. And it's challenging. When we were doing those cooking classes, I think our goal was to do a dollar twenty-eight or less per serving, like per person. And it was really challenging to do. But I will say if somebody listening is on a very tight budget and wants to eat healthy, I highly recommend looking up the Cooking Matters cookbooks. I believe that they're freely available and they are really delicious, very nutritious recipes, and pretty relatively low cost. Hmm, that sounds good. What are some examples of like foods and meals or something? Yeah, so they tend to incorporate a lot of plant-based proteins since, you know, animal protein sources like meat or 
chicken, things like that can be kind of more expensive. So they incorporated a lot of beans. Like I remember they have this like black bean salad thing that was really delicious. They also incorporated things like eggs. If they were going to include animal proteins, like we did a whole cooking class on like, how do you use the whole chicken? It's more expensive Mm. to buy chicken, like already cut up and already processed. Like every step that's added is going to add more cost. So if you buy the whole chicken and you can figure out a way to use every part of that, then it's, it's less expensive over the long term. You know, despite being an RD, you are, and we have RDs that are really into this too, but you're a researcher for nutrition, but like you really get into the biological component of weight loss. And so for anybody listening, so we got, you know, five to 8%, Dr. Michelle mentioned as what you can expect over the course of a year when it comes to like an, we're talking like intensive program, right? Where it's like, you have a lot of handholding and teaching about nutrition and some sort of accountability and whatnot. So that's intensive. And most of the people listening have probably done some sort of program in the past. They've probably hired coaches and things like that, and they've done that. So they're probably listening going like, well, why are you guys talking about diet? We're just kind of putting things into perspective here. So some people do, and they're not listening to this because the people listening to this likely are you know, taking a medicine or thinking about taking a medicine. But there are some people that are very successful with diet only, but there are a lot of people that, you know, they don't get what they were hoping for. So what, can you talk a little bit, we talk about the biological driver, but like, can you talk about from your lens, you know, as a nutrition RD, PhD researcher, like the biological drivers and how you kind of got into that? Yeah, absolutely. So we know weight loss isn't one size fits all, and obesity is a really complex and chronic condition that has both biological and behavioral and psychosocial components. And so there's growing evidence that for some people, prescription weight medications can address those biological components of obesity. And so I see all of these things as tools in the toolbox, the behavioral weight management programs, prescription medications, surgery. These are all options. And oftentimes folks, because of the biological basis of obesity, may need to use one or all of these at at various points in in their life. Um, I do think it's important that across treatment options, that there is a behavioral weight management component to it because there's no pill that's going to make you move more or shift to a healthier mindset or eat a higher diet quality of foods. So that behavioral weight management piece, whether you're talking meds or surgery or devices, I still think that the behavioral weight management piece needs to be foundational to anything that you're doing. When you got into research however many years ago and became an RD and then then you got your PhD, did you ever think you were going to think about the biological like medical component of it or were you like gung-ho? When I went into medical school, I was like, not anti-medicine. I didn't even know it existed. So I was, but I was very behavioral minded. And it wasn't until like through med school and going through some of these conferences, like, oh, this is interesting. And then obviously talking to patients in your journey, I'm just kind of interested in where you were like, hmm, we got to get more tools. Like how did, did it was at conferences or how did you stumble onto that? So my journey was actually not necessarily typical. So I did undergrad, my undergraduate degree was actually in biology and chemistry. And then I did a master's in clinical nutrition. And then I was 
doing my PhD in nutrition sciences and halfway through my PhD, I was like, whoa, I'm missing this whole like clinical piece of what I'm doing. And we were so focused on the science of what was happening, but I was really interested in like, okay, how do you implement this? And so I went to my PhD mentor about halfway through and I was like, uh, so I actually want to become a registered dietitian and he's a wonderful mentor. Like I cannot say enough amazing things about him, but his response was, why? Like you're getting a PhD in nutrition science. Why would you become a registered yeah. dietitian? And I felt it was so important to not just have like the research insights and like the biological insights, but I, I really wanted to know from like a behavior piece and like, how do you implement this with real people? And so I had to do like 55 additional credit hours to even qualify for the dietetic internship. I did the dietetic internship the last year of my PhD. So I was in the hospital 40 hours a week and then doing my PhD on nights and weekends. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty intense time, but I have never, ever, ever regretted doing the PhD RD route. It has been a really wonderful career trajectory and path. But I think because of that unique way that I came about doing it, I always felt really strongly about the biological contributors to obesity. Oh, very cool. And I've been in this field for about 17 years now. And I've just been really fortunate to train with amazing people who always seem to have a really great understanding of the biological components. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we have, this, we run in the same circles, but I've, you know, now I've gotten to know you, but over, I don't know, we have a lot of the same friends. We go to the same conferences, but never actually spoke at any of them, which is kind of funny. I know. Cool. It was really cool to hear your journey. Anything else that you want the listeners to know? I mean, basically, like, you know, the other thing we're kind of working together on while people are on these medicines, we want to optimize diet somehow to, to best improve the health of everyone, maybe not augment the weight loss, but maybe, I'm not sure. Anything else that you're you're thinking about? Just I really appreciate what what sequence is doing. I love that we're increasing access to evidence based obesity care and treatment. Unfortunately, obesity has been such a stigmatized condition for so long, and we know that weight bias and discrimination is is pervasive. And I'm really hopeful that as we can work together and in increasing access to evidence-based care for those living with obesity, that folks will see that there is a very strong biological basis in the development of obesity. And these medications can absolutely play a significant role in, in managing the condition. And that can be optimized, as you're saying, with a behavioral weight management program to focus on not just diet quality, but physical activity and resistance training, and then also that mindset piece and shifting to a more positive mindset, which can be really helpful over the long term. Love it. Well, thanks for coming on. We'll probably have you on again as we keep working together. So thank you. Yeah, I would love that. Thanks for having me, Dr. Spencer. You got it. And for anybody listening, uh, make sure you share this with a friend who's you know, interested in some of the diet research and thinking about how much weight you can lose with diet on average. And, you know, kind of comparing it to medicines and surgery and all these different options. Just know there are different tools and we have a lot of different options. Thanks for listening.